Hello and welcome to episode 120 of the Juice Box Podcast. This episode is sponsored today by Dexcom and Insulate. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Denise Faustman about the research she's doing into the possible cure for type 1 diabetes. So what I know about Dr. Faustman just comes from what I read and what I see and from what I hear in the community. Generally speaking, what I think I hear is Dr. Faustman found this old vaccine and it cures type 1 diabetes. Yay! Except I thought, that can't be right, can it? I need to talk to Dr. Faustman to find out. What you're going to hear in this hour is clarity from from Dr. Faustman. She is going to be 100% clear with you about the goals of her trial, uh, about the desires of what she thinks she's found, uh, the desires of what that's going to accomplish, both in the long and the short term. And uh, I think it's going to be very, very valuable for you to listen to. There's going to be a little sciencey stuff in the very be- in the middle-ish third, where Dr. Faustman's going to talk for a while, a couple of minutes about something. I encourage you to just do your best to listen and understand because it is going to feed your understanding for what comes for the rest of the episode. Please listen all the way through to the end. This one is full of good information. Also remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making changes to your healthcare plan. I'm Dr. Denise Faustman and I'm the director of the immunobiology labs here at Massachusetts General Hospital and I'm an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Wow. Well, that already sounds very impressive. Good for you. I'm Scott. Nobody ever gave me a distinction ever. I tried my hardest. Um, can I ask you, how long have you been working on, on just researching? Because uh, I'm assuming you're just a research, you're a research doctor at this point, right? Do you see patients? Oh, I do. I see about 40 patients a week. Oh, no kidding. Okay. Yeah. So I, I have an MD and I have a PhD. But the patients I all see um, all come in because they want to be involved in clinical trial research. I see. Um, And so uh, they arrive uh, with high expectations and excitement. Um, Unlike most patients in diabetes who arrive to see their endocrinologist with a depressed feeling that they're going to be told they did a bad job the last three months. You You don't have to be that person for those people. I don't have to be that person. And so it's a much more positive part of medicine. Yeah, no kidding. I guess so. Um, well, what got you involved? So what got you involved in diabetes in that space to begin with? How, what was your pathway? Like when you went to, like, let's go back when you went to college to, and went to medical school, what, what, what was your intention at that point? Yeah. So um, I have an MD and PhD and I thought for a long time that I wanted to be like a real, what I call a real doctor, like what you referred to, do you see patients? And I got with all that training, okay, which goes on forever and ever. And when I got done with all that training and ended up in a diabetes clinic in a little square room seeing diabetics all day long, I I just realized that I kind of made the wrong decision because it wasn't very positive. And it was looking at people that you knew had a chronic disease and looking uh, for the complications of that disease. And so it was monitoring, but not doing anything that might change the disease course. So that's what really forced me back into doing research. 
I don't want to date you, Dr. Faustman, but around what, what year was that when you were? Oh, yeah. So that was around 1987, okay. 1988. Um, I made the decision that I really needed to do research, but on human disease and involving human subjects, but not just caretaking in a clinic. No, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, so at that point in the way things were done with diabetes, it wasn't even as a clinician, it wasn't a completely, it wasn't a hopeful scenario. You were, you were managing people to their complications that you imagined they were going to have at some point. Is that? Yeah, it is still kind of that way, right? I mean, the, the people who have such amazing um, clinical experiences are, um, you go into an oncologist and you get new immunotherapy and my gosh, you're walking out and you're living three months, six months, okay? Or you go in and you get a kidney transplant and you're hugging your surgeon on the way out because your life has just changed, right? Or, um, you know, you get some terrible pneumonia and you walk out after antibiotics and an intensive care unit stay and you're hugging. And in diabetes, you know, the people leave typically in the clinic and, the, you know, maybe not this time they're going blind, but next time it could happen. So I just realized that observing but not being able to change the course or to try to change the course was um, not satisfactory enough. And so is that about the point where you decided I'm going to put my effort into something that at least could could maybe yeah. change things? Yeah. I mean, I, I had done a PhD, but and I had done a postdoc by then, but I still thought that I really like seeing patients, but I think it's the subspecialty I picked of the interaction with the people wasn't that I could promise them anything or give them any vision because I was looking what I like to call for badness every day. Let me so, ask you this. Yeah. Let's say you came out of med school six months ago and, yeah. and you fell into a world with continuous glucose monitoring and, and insulin pumps and the idea yeah. of, uh, you know, there's going to be, you know, uh, algorithms that help you with your, you know, with your insulin dosage and stuff like that, do you think that your experience would have been different? Do you think that experience was very specific to the time in diabetes care? Um, I still think that we need to do a lot better in diabetes care. So I still think um, tweaking the disease is more satisfying now than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But people are still on a curve. And it's it's a curve downward that's not the normal life curve. So that kind of curve would be the motivation to change that kind of curve. So your your mind is more of a, I mean, you, you really are focused on a bigger picture, like a, a long, uh, it's it's the long play for you. It's not, you, it doesn't, you don't get as excited about like, hey, what can we fix today for tomorrow? You, you really do want to get into a world where it yeah, just exist. Yeah, I don't, it, you know, individual tweaking, like changing somebody's insulin dose or uh, having a new monitor or a new form of insulin doesn't do it for me, okay? It, they're small and it's incremental and it's better, but I like to think about um, mechanistically um, more giant leaps, which of course take longer periods of time. Okay. So now you can't, now is, is research just something that you say to yourself one day, like I'm going to go into research. Did you see something that like made you think, um, you know, this might be an avenue? Like, you know, I, I heard someone tell a, 
excuse me, a joke about like a family member the other day. And they said, you know, I have this uncle who is always got, he's always on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And he said, he came to my father one night and said, I've got a great idea. It's uh, can you imagine if you painted your walls once it only took one coat and you never had to paint it again. And the person said, yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, you know, and the, and the guy said, Oh, great. I thought so too. Now all we have to do is find a guy to, to develop that. And, and so it was like, so you know what I mean? Like, do you have, did you see something in diabetes that made you say, huh? That's what that, I want to focus on? Y- yeah, yeah. That, that might be something. Or did you just decide, I want to try, I'm going to be a person who looks for a cure and just sit down on day one and try to figure out what that meant? Yeah, I think it was actually from an early failure that drove me to kind of take a different pathway um, in diabetes, in fact, because mm-hmm. uh, my PhD work was the isolation of the first insulin secreting cells from the pancreas. Okay, so my uh, supervisor at that time had isolated the islets, insulin secreting cells from a rat pancreas. So it just seemed like it would be the next day before you isolated those from a human pancreas and you were curing people, right? Um, that may not seem like it was the vision now, but at the time it just seemed so tangible and so nearby. I see. So my contributions during my thesis work was, well, you can't just put your islets into me because I'm going to reject them. So I'm going to look at ways to disguise those islets so it can be done without harm. So it was that concept that really uh, got me my job at Harvard, okay, because Harvard was not going to allow the Midwest, because I was at Washington University, uh, cure diabetes. Um, um, And so I got recruited here to set up the first islet transplant program on the East Coast. Okay. What year was that? uh, That was 19. So we started the program at like 1990. Okay. Okay. okay, and um, um, so there was no shortage of pancreases to get islets out of. Okay, it was just a matter of setting up the facility to do this in a safe way, um, and it seemed like a no-brainer, right? You just isolate these islets from pancreas donors uh, from tragic cases, and you isolate uh, the surgeons, uh, the kidney, and since the people need a kidney transplant and immunosuppression, just pop in the islets. Okay. So it seemed so tangible, so close, right? And so we set up that program, and um, the group here started rapidly seeing um, the success time and time again of kidney transplants and the failure of the islets. So it was a real wake-up call, okay, that people didn't want to hear that you could have had diabetes for 20, 30 years, and guess what? you're still bumping off these islets, even with major immunosuppression. So it was that negative data, okay, and talk about negative data. It was kind of data that nobody wanted to hear at meetings because everybody was then, you know, within a five-year time period, going to cure diabetes with islet transplants. And yet we had all this clinical experience coming along and everybody goes, no, we just need to tweak it a little more. We just need to tweak it. And so we rapidly realized We've got a big problem. The data is really clear. You give a long-term diabetic immunosuppression. You put in a kidney transplant because they're in renal failure. The kidney lives on just fine. And guess what? You put in these insulin-secreting cells, and they disappear. They're presumably rejected by recurrent disease. So 
Um, nobody wanted to, everybody kind of thought, well, if you've had diabetes 20, 30 years, all those bad T cells that killed your islets in the first place are gone. But this data suggested that they were alive well and quite functional. So it was really that bad clinical data that, to me, identified a, a big zit in our research knowledge that we needed to go back and study people with long-term diabetes and try to identify and maybe perhaps destroy these bad T cells because it didn't matter who had the bigger vat of islets, you were going to lose. So in answer to your question, that was kind of a long answer, but in answer answer your question, it was that failure that drove me personally to say, we don't know anything about these bad T cells. We've got to, we got to focus on those because just putting in more tissue that gets recognized and bumped off is not going to be the answer. Well, so I'm going to... Before I sort of jump into a bunch of questions for you, and I don't want to hit you all at once with them, I, I want to tell you a little bit about me and what led me to reach out to you. So, yeah, yeah. So, so my daughter Arden has been uh, has had type one diabetes since just after her second birthday, and she's wow. she's going to be okay, thirteen so. in a couple of weeks. And how old is she now? She'll she'll be thirteen in just a couple of okay. weeks. Okay. Um, there was this. I guess it was about three months after she was diagnosed. I remember getting up early one morning to check on her blood sugar. And it was shaky, so I, I didn't go back to sleep. And I mm -hmm. sat at my computer, and I was, you know, you know, Googling and Googling about diabetes. And I came across this person who was, um, it was a story about their research, and they were clearly looking for, for funding for research and had, was out doing the media. And they had cured it in, in you know, at lab mice. Mm -hmm. And I remember at that moment thinking, oh, well, geez, it's, we're almost done. How lucky are we that my daughter got diabetes in the last six months of diabetes? You, you, you yeah. know what I mean? Like that, that's yeah. how it felt in the moment. And mm -hmm. once what I now call a uh, cure season passed uh, and, yeah. it, and it came around again the next year and the next year and I was like, oh, there's another researcher telling me about how they cured it in a mouse again. And I was like, oh, this is the time of year where people get out and, and try to get people excited about their research so they can keep doing their research. It, and not that I think there's literally anything wrong with that at all. I, I think that smart people should be working down every avenue that exists. I just wish that newly diagnosed people knew that, that when they bump into that information, it doesn't mean, oh, we're almost there because it, it was, it was crushing to find out that this was about the 9 millionth mouse that didn't have type one diabetes anymore. You, you know, yeah. and, and, and there's even data that comes out, no names mentioned here. Okay. That, Oh, I've cured three mice. And guess what? They didn't have autoimmunity. You know, it's like, oh, you mean a chemically induced mouse. Okay. Right, right. And so it's kind of funny because those of us who work mostly in human immunology, when we publish a paper, we always say, you know, human mechanistic studies. But when people publish mouse data, they just go, mechanistic studies on diabetes cure. And we go like, why did you say mouse mechanistic And it's, it's interesting because I would have no way of, like, you know, me being the person reading the article, I'd have yeah. no way of knowing that. And and I just remember that, like, it was bad enough to find out that someone you loved had type 1 and then to start yeah. experiencing what it le meant to live with it. But then to have something lift you up that high, it, it didn't just drop me. Like, I felt like it dropped me and it threw me down at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then once I hit the ground, it jumped up on top of me a couple of times to make sure, you know. 
And I've always sort of going forward in those next eight, nine years where I've, I've had a fairly you know successful blog and this podcast now, I've always tried really hard to pass on the one thing that I learned from that po- that process, which is I very much hope that someone cures my daughter, but yeah. I, I do not live day to day like it's going to happen because mm-hmm. I, I find that to be very, um, that goes against, it goes against living happily. You, you know what I mean? Well, so. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I even see people, you know, they come in and they go, well, I don't need to take care of myself anymore. I'm like, why's that? Oh, well, you're going to cure me tomorrow. <laughs> I go like, well, wait a minute, I'm not your excuse for not taking care of yourself today, sure. you know? Yeah. So I understand that. And it's also kind of an appreciation of the public um, and in getting the public up to speed of just how arduous the process is of going from a mouse to a human. Mm-hmm. It's not only does everything hold promise and translate correctly, but it's a long, very expensive process. And um, I think a lot of people either read the mouse literature or they you know, see the drugs being approved, but they don't have a clear appreciation of the timeline and the money line to get those dots connected in their lifespan. That music can only mean one thing. It is time to talk about the fine people who support the Juice Box podcast with their advertisements. And let me start right now by saying thank you to Dexcom. You have signed back on for 26 more episodes of the podcast. I could not be more thrilled or genuinely grateful. Thank you to Dexcom for supporting the podcast. Listen to this. The Dexcom G5 mobile continuous glucose monitoring system is the first FDA-approved device to let you make treatment decisions without pricking your finger. Just think about what that means. Sure, there's less finger sticks, but that's really just the beginning because the future is now. To begin managing your type 1 diabetes with the same great technology that has helped us to keep Arden's A1C between 5.6 and 6.2 for almost four years, please, please visit dexcom.com forward slash juice box or click on the link in your show notes to find out more. And I do have to read a disclaimer here, so give me a second. Finger sticks are still required for calibration or if your symptoms or expectations do not match readings or when taking medications containing acetaminophen. So please go to Dexcom.com forward slash juice box to get started today understanding what continuous glucose monitoring can do for you. Also, here's the really good news. With the new ad buy from Dexcom, we're going to make new advertisements so you won't have to hear these anymore. I'm going to get new ones that you'll get sick of, but if you would just go to the link, it wouldn't matter. You wouldn't have to ever listen again. You'd just be like, wow, I already know. I know the magic. All right, so maybe you're a person who does injections and you're thinking, I'm tired of skipping a fun little snack because I don't feel like giving myself an injection. Then you need an insulin pump if that's how you feel. Maybe you're a person with an insulin pump who is right now sitting with like 20 inches of tubing going through their shirt and their shorts and laying on their leg and you're attached to this device. Maybe you're thinking, I love my insulin pump, but I, I hate being attached. Maybe, maybe... You just want to go swimming without taking off your pump or get in the shower without having to think about it. No matter who it is you are in this little scenario, this little podcast uh, play that I've painted for you, you need to try Omnipod. You desire to try Omnipod. I am talking to you now from the podcast world and telling you, you want to go to myomnipod.com forward slash juice box so that you can try a no obligation free demo pod so you can see if what I'm telling you is... You know, if I'm being on the up and up, which I am, but you should find out for yourself. Don't just trust me. 
The other day, Arden was playing in a softball game. Her team is trying to go to the Little League World Series. They've made it through two of the tournaments. They're starting the third one tonight, actually. After they win that one, hopefully, then they have to move on to another. If they win that one, they get to go all the way out to the Little League World Series. Just think about that for a second. Think about how much effort and time, uh, exertion, practicing two hours a night, playing in this incredible heat. Arden's blood sugars are spectacular. The fine adjustments that we make with the Omnipod um, and also you know, with the help of the Dexcom, it, it, it allows her to just do this incredibly strenuous thing. Please take a moment to look in your show notes, click on the links, check out Dexcom, check out Omnipod, see if what I'm telling you is not the truth. I think you're going to be really thrilled if you do. Dexcom.com forward slash juicebox and myomnipod.com forward slash juicebox. Now, let's get back to Dr. Faustman. Things are going to blow up here. By the next 40 minutes, your head's going to explode. Here we go. We think of the world as is the distance between our birth and our death, basically. Yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. know, and and it's you know, I think if I could be, I'm going to ballpark some numbers here, but there are over thirty thousand diseases that medicine knows about, and I think we've cured eight of them so far. Yeah, we haven't cured many. So, yeah, right, right. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and it's weird to laugh about it now, but as a person whose child's had it for ten years, I I, I can laugh about it because if you would have if. You know, I can imagine hearing this conversation and me giggling about it. If my kid had been diagnosed four months ago, I'd be completely angry. I'm still in the part where I'm like, no, someone's going to figure this out. We're not going to be with this for very long. The fact of the matter is, is that while the work you're doing or the work someone else is doing could bear fruit in a year and five years and 10 years, to be perfectly honest, it's also possible that 100 years from now, someone cures type 1 diabetes and they stand in front of a podium and talk about the thing that Denise Faustman did in 1990. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, it, There's no way to quantifiably understand where it's going to end or how it's going to end for reasons like you just brought up. Like you talked earlier about... You know, everyone thought this was it, but then it turns out that wasn't correct. And you're mm-hmm. gonna you're gonna bump up on stuff like that all the time. You know, getting funding, uh, keeping you know keeping your own personal. You're a human being, keeping your own personal drive going. And you, you know, how does someone you know how do you bring other people in to teach them what you're doing? There's just there's so much involved in it that I just hope that what people hear after you and I speak is this is what you're doing, and here's how you think it's going, and here's how you hope it's going, and at the same time. Don't wake up tomorrow and think, oh, I don't have to test my blood sugar because this. Yeah, this, I can let my hemoglobin A1C go to nine. Not even Definitely going to matter. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Because next year, I'm going to grab myself an artificial pancreas. And two years after that, I'm going to get some injection and it's all going to be over. And, you know, I, I would I would say this. I don't know how many episodes ago I, I interviewed a scientist from the JDRF and we were talking about... Um, Oh gosh, that little uh, Vitacite thing that, you know, with the, cell, oh, yeah. the cells, okay. which yeah. by the way, I think... I think for science that we understand today, that is one of the more exciting ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but but the the point is is that as I was talking about it with him, the gentleman said the the truth of the matter is if we perfected it today, it could take a decade to get to market. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so so yeah, you're so so for clarity, you're nowhere near perfecting it today. But if you did, it still could be ten years by the time everything that needs to happen. And it can be mass produced. I was mm-hmm. like, "Wow, that that is, that is the that's the real truth of what we're talking about." So, so, <laughs> so let me let me ask you, what is the basis for your research, and can you can you walk me through a little bit in as much layman's terms as possible what it is and how it how it like what is it you're chasing? I guess. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, it actually ties together with what we talked about a couple minutes ago. So we came to appreciate from human data. Okay, so that's always important because um, you don't want to work your whole career on the mouse. Okay, right. but we soon appreciated from human data that no matter how long you had had diabetes, five years, 10 years, 15, 20, you still had bad T cells out there that could redo the damage. Okay. And so we switched gears to go after those bad T cells. Okay. And gradually, as we started going after them to identify them and see if there was ways to manipulate them, um, we, we and other people globally started recognizing, well, type 1 diabetes wasn't just a disease of these badly educated T cells, but type 1 diabetes was also a disease of too few good T cells. And those T cells are often referred to as T reg cells or T regulatory cells. So it really um, started to be clear in human autoimmune diseases, not just you know, diabetes, but multiple sclerosis and lupus and um, the major autoimmune diseases that you had bad T cells and you had too many of them and you had too few good T cells. So the goal of many people has been how do you reset that thermostat so you kill or bump off or inactivate the bad T cells and you turn on the good T cells, okay? So that's the basic premise. The basic premise of what we work on is we've got to change that immune balance because if you don't change it, you're going to get inflammation on capsules. If you don't change it, stem cells aren't going to work. If you don't change it, islet transplants aren't going to work. If you don't change it, you can't halt the disease early in the process. Okay, so that's not just my vision. I think that's probably a pretty well-established vision in the immunological community. So we went back to look at really basic science studies, you know, the kind of data that puts everybody to sleep, even fellow scientists, to look at what we call signaling pathways. What made a diabetic T cell look different than a T cell from somebody without diabetes? And we also went to the mouse because we said, does the mouse have the same thing? And when I tell you about the mouse, I'm talking about the NOD mouse, which I'm sure you've reported on many times. It's an autoimmune model. And so based on those studies, we started identifying this pathway that was dysregulated on the bad T cells and dysregulated on the good T cells. And it was the same pathway in a reciprocal fashion. And it, the pathway is called the TNF pathway. Okay. And it was kind of the comfort zone that we could see it in the mouse, but it was even more the comfort zone, and this was around 2008 or so, that those same abnormalities persisted and could be found in a diversity of human autoimmune diseases, whether it was MS or Crohn's or type 1 diabetes. So when you start seeing things in an inbred animal model, it's all good, but you may never see it in a human. But in this case, we were seeing the same same thing. So it made us feel comfortable that we were working on a pathway where we needed to develop drugs or compounds to, um, and it would it, it might turn out to be an important pathway. So the drug or pathway um, um, to try to target those cells and change it kind of came from an inspiration from a science paper that was written by a guy named David Baltimore, who won the Nobel Prize, not for that, but for other work. And he had been making, maybe this is too detailed for your podcast, but he'd been making mutant culture cells. 
And he started manipulating this pathway and he said, oh, by the way, if there's defects in this signaling pathway, your cells will, um, the T cells, the bad T cells, um, uh, CD8 cells um, might die with TNF. And we read that paper and um, it was a little bit of a eureka moment because he said, well, that's a simple experiment to do. Tomorrow, we're going to draw diabetic blood. We're going to pull, pull out that diabetic blood. We're going to isolate the bad T cells and we're going to put a little bit of that TNF on them. And sure enough, within like four hours, we started seeing the very selective death of the bad T cells. So that then took, you know, like another five years to get uh, large enough cohorts to say, um, yeah, this is really true. It doesn't matter if you're diabetic and 15 years out. It doesn't matter if you're diabetic and 20 years out or five years out. You've got this defect. And then we and a number of other groups started working on the good T cells. And other groups even before us started saying, well, it's, the story's even better if you put TNF on uh, too few good T cells, it proliferates them. And sure enough, we went back to diabetics and we said, well, maybe maybe that's not going to be true in humans. You know, you've got the right TNF, but it doesn't work to proliferate the good T cells. And bingo, it proliferated the good T cells. So it was really at that point from like fundamental basic research where we saw something in a mouse and saw something in a human, we said, okay, it seems pretty straightforward. We need more TNF, okay? And it was that comfort by doing human studies and really having the participation of the diabetic community coming in here and giving blood every morning, right? Um, so we could do human studies and, and get the answer that was correct that inspired us to say, now we got to move it forward to human clinical trials. So it was doing a lot of homework. It wasn't just luck. And um, um, that's how we got back into trials nearly 20 years after the failures from islet transplants. And so you have, are you completed with a phase one? With, oh, yeah, we're yeah. way done with the phase one. And okay. in fact, um, uh, we're pretty much uh, full, full enrollment for our phase two clinical trial right now. Uh, Double-blinded, placebo-controlled, FDA oversight. So we're pretty advanced right now in the clinical trial development program. Um, explain to people sort of what the phase one component of the trial consists of. Yeah. Yeah. So phase one, by definition, is safety. Okay. So um, uh, phase one trials are done to make sure a drug is safe. Now, um, as you probably know from reading about research, we're working with a hundred-year-old drug, right? <laughs> so you might even say to us, why in the world did you do a phase one trial when uh, four billion people have received this vaccine at birth? And uh, last year, a hundred million infants infants at birth got this vaccine. Why would you have to do a safety trial? Well, if the FDA says you're going to do a safety trial, guess what? You do a safety trial, right. okay? So we did um, a safety trial, but it was really beneficial for us not to prove once again um, uh, that the drug was safe because we were giving more doses, but also to try to establish all our biomarkers so we would have a better appreciation on how to dose the drug as we move forward. Okay, and so for people who are just now listening for the first time or, or hearing about you, tell them what vaccine it is you're, you're Oh, using. yes, yes. So the vaccine, Americans usually have never heard of this vaccine, but the rest of the world knows the vaccine. The vaccine's called BCG, okay? And it's a live attenuated uh, vaccine uh, that is an organism similar to tuberculosis, but is actually 
a derivative of a form of tuberculosis that affects cows. And it was developed over 120 years ago as the vaccine to vaccine uh, to vaccinate people against to prevent tuberculosis. Um, and it's been uh, the most continuously used vaccine in the history of the world uh, to be given at birth to prevent downstream infection with tuberculosis. And if you look at all global populations, just to give you an appreciation, 98% of all global populations have had this vaccine. So um, uh, talk about safety record. Uh, we got that one nailed on this vaccine. What does phase one have to do to move to phase two? What does it have to go? Oh, you have to prove safety. So phase one's generally not about efficacy. You just have to say nobody had a side effect. You know, diabetics were happy at the end and uh, nothing untoward happened. So. Right, okay. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So someone asked me this question and I have to admit that um, as you were talking, it made me think of it right away. I'm glad that someone wrote in and asked me to ask you, but it hit me as soon as you said it. 98% of people on the planet have had this TB vaccine. Why do those people get type 1 diabetes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we know a vaccine at birth doesn't protect you from an autoimmune disease later on. So it would be like asking um, somebody who's diabetic, well, I gave you um, an injection of insulin when you were born. How come you still have high blood sugars 12 years later. Um, it, it has no efficacy when you don't have the disease. So would you need to, is, are your findings telling you that, that you would need to continue? Is this vaccine something you'd have to get continually through your life? Yeah. Right. So there's data on that, not our data, other people's data. There's data from Turkey that was published two years ago because in you're really talking about prevention, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, data... So globally, uh, BCG can be given at birth, and depending on where you are in the world, it can be given up to three or four times in childhood. So in Turkey, they did a study looking at children who got no dosing, got one dose, two dose, three, or three doses. And um, they could statistically show that if you got three doses in childhood, there was um, a lower incidence of diabetes than if you got one or zero doses at birth. So chronic administration or multiple administration at birth, at least by one study, suggests it might prevent the progression of the disease. I see. Um, okay, so so now you're into phase two. Is mm -hmm. it, has it begun yet? Oh, yeah. So we're, um, as of kind of this week, um, maybe next week, uh, we're fully enrolled. 150 cohorts will be followed five years. And that, and that is the length of time for phase two is five years. Yes, yes. So, and that's a relevant topic to address because, um, as you probably noticed from your reading, um, there's uh, many trials going on with BCG right now uh, for autoimmune diseases. And um, so we benefit greatly from following data in, for instance, multiple sclerosis. And uh, published data in multiple sclerosis after a phase two trial showed that when you followed um, people for progression of multiple sclerosis, the clinical effect, in other words, the clinical effect, no relapses of the disease and uh, resolution of the lytic lesions in your brain by MRI scanning was most dramatic when you followed people out five years. So the effect of the drug is not like taking an aspirin or an antibiotic that you take it and um, 
three months later, uh, you have a clinical remission. It takes a lot longer for this drug, at least at the doses we're using it, to have the really significant clinical outcomes everybody desires. And the, and the outcome, so if I'm understanding correctly, the outcome you're looking for is you're not technically, so you would, would you call this a cure or would you call well, it a suppression of the yeah. T cell that? Yeah, so, you know, it, um, I, the word cure is kind of a loaded term, right? Sure, sure. So if you ask somebody, or at least in our clinic here, if you ask somebody who's uh, 16 years out from disease, a cure is not going into a coma with hypoglycemia every night, right? Or being able to be aware that their blood sugar is low. If you ask somebody 20 years out from diabetes, what's a cure? They go, get my hemoglobin A1C down from an 8 to a 7 and forestall the complications. And if you ask somebody you know, probably with new onset diabetes, they go, I want to get rid of the insulin. Okay. <laughs> so the word cure kind of has uh, different names depending on, uh, or different visions. But um, our outcome that we've set for this trial is um, a lowering of the hemoglobin A1C by over uh, 10%, um, which would be over 10% from the standard of care currently. Okay. So, so the goal in the five years is to get, is to get the, the hemoglobin A1C down 10% from standard yeah. of care now. Or greater. Or greater. Yeah. Well, sure. Uh, I'm sure, I'm sure the, the goal of every trial is for it to magically disappear. But it, it, yeah. It, yeah. It, the, um, the idea is you brought up something interesting. I've talked about it on here a couple of times before that when you, when people think about medicine in the modern age, they think of, you know, my throat gets scratchy, I took a pill and it stopped being scratchy. And that's <laughs> medicine to, to most people. This is this is a, a different animal at all. Like whatever your research ends up, you know, bringing to bear at the end of five years, it, it's, you're not, you're not at the, at this moment, you're not doing something that in your mind is a light switch fix, right? It's not like five years from now, there's not going to be this protocol that you follow and then I'd follow the protocol and your diabetes is just gone, like turning on a light switch. That's, that's Yeah, so, you know, we'll see as we move along, but our stated um, goal in this trial is to lower, in other words, you want to lower hemoglobin A1C and you want to do it, in other words, with CGMs, you can lower hemoglobin A1Cs, right? But you can't lower them. Or with insulin, you can lower hemoglobin A1Cs, but you can't get them in the normal range. And you can't get them in the normal range because you start getting lethal hypoglycemia, right? So with the standard of care being better in type 1 diabetes, a 10% lowering of hemoglobin A1C is going to put you near normal level because people have better control now than you know, 10 years ago, well, you still need insulin. We'll see, you know? Well, I don't want to, so this is not an argument to what you just said. I just want to, I want to point out to people that I think that like for me, for what this podcast usually is for people is that I believe that there is a way to understand the use of insulin in a way that does what, what you just said might not be possible. So I will give you an example. My daughter's Almost in the last four years, I think we're almost up to four years now. Her A1C has been between five six and six two for four years. Wow, and that's pretty good. Thank you. And that is, um, it is a mixture of a lot of different things that I won't bore you with. But first of all, without a glucose monitor, it's nearly impossible. You can't do it. Right, you can't. But, but but it's and I don't know that that I shouldn't say it's nearly impossible, but it's nearly impossible to do in a way that you can be sure that some of that number hasn't been affected by some lows that you don't know you're having, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. so. 
what I've learned is that I've that the most important thing for me in the in the way the standard of care right now is is to understand how the insulin works in my daughter so that I can manipulate it to do what I want it to do most of the time, and and it, it I did figure that out. But in fairness to anybody who hasn't, I'm a stay at home parent who was taking care of a child who had type one diabetes, and I yeah. had nothing else to do except to fi- to figure that out. You know, yeah. um, and yeah. and. You're talking about a world where people get diagnosed on a Tuesday and have to go to back to work on Monday with some insulin in their pocket and a meter and this very specious information that we hand people when they're diagnosed. And, and so that any betterment is betterment. Um, and, and, and also trying to – what I think of too is that when you're trying to teach somebody a, a concept – my brain doesn't work the same as your brain doesn't work the same as the next person's brain. I could explain all day long what I do. It doesn't necessarily mean it'll even click with you. You, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Or that you're, it's just, it's a very, it's, in, it's a personalized disease. For it the certainly mess. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so this is, so now what would you say that now if I looked online, mm-hmm. what I would see from people is, that Dr. Faustman has figured out a way to take the TB vaccine and cure people from type 1 diabetes, which you have just very clearly in the last 15 minutes said is not what, exactly what you're doing. And so how do you think that happens? Like to go back to what we talked about in the beginning, how do you think we get into that like fervor of – do you think it's just hope? Do, do you think it's just that idea like people want to blindly just hope it's going to stop one day? Because I'll tell you right now, the other day I had that feeling. I thought I was going to cry. And I just, I, and I'm not normally that person. I don't give into that thought normally, but I just thought, wow, I need this to stop, you, you know? So like, like, um, hope or vision or what, what, what I mean, you- like in the general population, like, but because your dad is pretty, I mean, you're obviously not on here saying something different than you've said somewhere else. So your dad is clear and your goal is clear. How do people end up walking away? Is it just whisper down the lane, walking away thinking, oh, because I've got questions here from people. Why, if it, it doesn't hurt, why can't I just use this vaccine on my kid right oh, now? Oh, well, that's, that's, we try to, okay, so that off-label use of this vaccine is kind of an important thing to talk about. So, um, first of all, uh, the most frequent call we get is someone calling my middle office, okay? And mm-hmm. this doesn't happen daily, but does it happen once a week at least, okay? And it's, it usually goes this scenario. First, it's um, CVS Pharmacy calling from um, Texas or Oklahoma or North Dakota, and they go, we're trying to order BCG. We can't seem to figure out who dispenses it. And my middle office will say, um, sorry, you know, uh, you know we're, we use an experimental BCG that's manufactured, you know, globally, but it's just for this purpose, you know, you can't buy it. And then it's not a day later that the physician calls and they go, well, we've got a very important patient or um, guess what? I'm in my office. The door is closed and my son has diabetes. I want this drug. How do I get it? And so we try to put it in a context that diabetes is a disease that's chronic, right? And you know personally um, the treatment of it is very personalized, very intense, and very hard to do and not um, without risk. But it's not like some of these other autoimmune diseases where you could be falling down and um, get an attack of lupus myocarditis and are dead in three months, right? It's a bad disease, but it's a chronic, 
slow disease. So this urgency to get it to dose for next week or next month is not the same time course of urgency of maybe people with MS feel. So we try to tell people, you really don't want to go buy something in Mexico and you don't want to buy it in Colombia and try to self-dose because you still have time. And I think this urgency that parents feel is not only the frustration of taking care of sick kids, right? It's not easy. But also the fact they've been told for so long, if you didn't get captured for a trial of new onset, there's no trials for you. And that's been true for the last 20 years. So this trial we're doing is kind of unique because it's one of the, whether we're successful or not, it's one of the first immunoinvention trials of, of doing a clinically important biomarker to try to reverse it with an immunotherapy, right? If you go to clinicaltrials.gov and you go through every single trial, you'll see that all the immunovention trials are in people who don't yet have diabetes or just got it a week ago, a month ago, or three months ago. So there's a lot of desperation of the people who've had the disease that have missed that interval to think that they're going to miss this interval as well. So we try to reassure people that although we may not have enough slots and enough money to try this in the numbers of people that, you know, might benefit from it. We're moving along at a thoughtful pace with pure, you know, good FDA oversight to make sure we do it correctly. And this urgency isn't quite as needy as maybe people with other autoimmune diseases where the time course of the disease is very severe and nasty. I think too, in, in recent time, especially with cancer, doctors are now finding ways to like you, you use your your immune system against the cancer and specific yeah. and specific yeah. things. Yeah. Then you read about that. And it sounds like oh, look how we. It's funny when you're when you when you when just listening to you, right? Mm -hmm. I I realize there are about a million facets to this that I'll never grasp. And and that it it really does go back to one of the very first feelings I had, I guess back when I decided that we would you know try to help the JDRF fundraise, which was I'm not a doctor, I'm never going to figure this out. You, you know, like this isn't something, this isn't where my value is at all. Trying to think about this, um, it just it it is uh, it is overwhelming as as a person who's affected by it to think that you've left it in someone else's hands and then you know conspiracy ideas pop into, you know, there's, uh, uh, people love to say, well, nobody cures anything because that's not where the money is. Mm -hmm. And and I have to say that, you know, I think that, I think our politics right now is proving this out to be true too. Y you can't keep a secret that big. Y you know what I mean? Like if, 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 if I was sitting on the cure to something and I wasn't releasing it because I was selling the thing that measures it, I, I think someone would tell somebody and, and, you, you know, like, and so I don't believe in that kind of, um, I don't believe in that conspiracy idea that it's out there and nobody's trying or that somebody's just wants to do the work and not ever get to completion that like, you know, not you, but anybody, like, I don't think a researcher just wants to research their whole life and never come up with an answer. I, I mean, I would imagine that by the nature of how your mind works and how you described what drove you the, you know, when we started talking, I would think that at the end of your, at the you know, on your last day, if you didn't find a, a good answer to the end of this, you're not going to feel 
good about that. You, you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't imagine that you'd come up with the answer next week, Denise, and then go, I'm not telling anybody because all oh, this research money is fat. You know? I want to do another mouse experiment. Yeah, let me cure a mouse one more time before I tell anybody. And, and no, and so I, you know, so there's sort of those parts of it that I, I get how sometimes everyone's mind works, doesn't work and everything. But I think the, the you said a lot of really valuable stuff here about the idea of understanding what it is we're actually reaching for. And so like, maybe, maybe this question will help somebody. And this, this was an asked question, but I think it really fits right in here. Like, can you, can you kind of explain what it is you've learned already and what it is you're hoping to learn with the next step? Okay. Is that a good question, right? Yeah. 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 So premise one that I mentioned before, we've learned that just because the disease is 10, 15, 20 years out, the disease is still there. Okay. It doesn't go away. This is human data. Okay. It doesn't go away. It's still there. Okay. So if it's a bad T cell, um, the bad T cell persists for decades. Okay. And that's not just our data. There's a lot of other data that I could discuss that supports the premise that if you've got a poorly educated immune system, it's poorly educated no matter what your blood sugar is. Okay. So second premise that we discovered that jarred people a little bit, but then became really pretty rapidly accepted was um, that, um, and certainly I had been taught from textbooks, every picture I had ever seen in a textbook or in med school was the same, that you got diabetes and, quote, you went into the honeymoon period. And if your daughter was two and a half, you know that honeymoon was a pretty short time period, right? Um, And because it's a very aggressive disease at that point. And then, you know, within a year or so, the honeymoon's over and your pancreas is dead. And um, now you're going to be on insulin. And that's the end of the story. So our work, as we worked on these biomarkers to monitor patients, uh, discovered, as you probably know, that um, the pancreas for decades in the majority of the people can continue to secrete insulin and be alive. So that's a real game changer, not just for our work, but for everybody's work on how the pancreas can survive even with these bad T cells. Is it that you can regenerate? Is it because there are certain cells that are resistant to the bad immune system or whatever? So that's kind of a game changer for everybody. And there is some data from other groups that support that premise. So there's a lot of data now where they've gone back to look at pancreases more carefully of people who died of type 1 diabetes. And lo and behold, you know, it's five years out or 10 years out and they still have some islets. So how were we brought up to view this disease as being over um, after the diagnosis is, is kind of a misnomer. So that gives us a bigger window for therapy. And then um, I, I think the third premise um, that we've learned is drugs take a long time to develop it, uh, but a shortcut is to try to use generic drugs uh, that have impeccable safety. Um, and that's feasible from academic efforts where um, we're, we're, we're not driven uh, necessarily by uh, financial outcome, but we're driven by where the data takes us and how fast we can move it to patients. Well, um, you know, the, the one of the questions that I got over and over and over again from people seem to indicate that they feel like there's something holding you, like in their minds, they picture you and you're being restrained from getting to this promised land that exists. Do you feel that way or... 
oh, well, you know, if you ask any researcher that, they go, I need more money. <laughs> okay, so that's not just me. Right. But um, even uh, that, um, by using a generic drug, we're moving pretty fast, actually, um, uh, because we can do a lot more shortcuts than you can do with new drug development. So I actually think that compared to, um, you know, it's intimidating when we go before the FDA and they come back with 100, 200 questions. But the good news is we can often look up the answers to hundreds of those questions by 100 years worth of scientific literature. So I would say that um, uh, we're moving at really a great clip. And we are only moving this fast because of the support of the diabetic community. Um, and um, we're doing these trials not to get the quick answer that can't be supported, but really um, the solid answer and the definitive answer that um, will allow, if possible, the data is good to um, make the drug widely available to a larger subpopulation of the type 1 diabetic community. I have to tell you, I'm just, I'm genuinely happy that I talked to you because I went from a completely uninformed idea of what it was you were trying to do. And then I reached out to people and as they asked their questions, I thought, geez, these people are in the exact same boat that I was in. Yeah. yeah. We just thought that, you know, there's this vaccine that's been around forever and it gets, you inject it and then you don't have diabetes anymore. And that's the end, yeah. you, you know, and, and I'm just. I wish it was that easy. Well, please. Yeah. <laughs> that was that. Hey, I buy it from Mexico too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, right. you're like, I would skip right over the FDA if it worked out like that. Yeah, I'd buy I'd run over Feldman. And, and, and so what, what you just proved to me is it's something that I end up saying to people is, is just, it's very true. I, I always hear people say, Hey, did you hear about this research? Did you hear about that? Did you hear about this? I have to call and find out. And what I kept, what I tell people all the time is if someone just cures type one diabetes, don't worry, you'll find out pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. It's a, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna not get out in the news. It isn't going to. And so, so you've really helped me today, not only just understand your research and what you're doing, but you really helped me with something that's been a, a long time focus of mind being a person who, like I said, has blogged and, and is doing this podcast and things like that. It's just for people to understand that the length of time that this means it, and, and that, and that it doesn't mean you're going slow. If something takes five years to get an answer, it is what it is. It's, it's that is the process. It's slow for you because you need it today. You want it today, but mm -hmm. it is not slow for the process for the process. You feel like you're moving pretty well, actually. And and that is absolutely. Um, I mean, know. people just keep in mind that most academic centers don't move a drug to this stage. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, usually academic centers are supported by industry at this stage. You know, huge empires bringing the drug to an academic center to trust. So this is actually really advanced. You know, clinical trial development and translation within an academic center. So that's fairly unbelievable. No, no, it, it's, yeah. it's just, there's a lot of clarity in what we've been talking about because I, I, you know, it's easy to get right. I, I think it was, I was talking to Chris Freeman one time and he just said, he's like, well, people just want to take a pill and they want it to go away. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and it's just, it's very true. And, and, you know, it's funny too, isn't it? That, um, even with things that pills do, um, end up fixing, you know, uh, what's a good example, I guess, is the way, um, 
um, uh, antibiotics has been morphing because no, nobody even finishes their prescription. So there is this magic thing that you can take and it fixes you. And, and I, you give, the doctor says, hey, look, take this twice a day for 10, and 10 days. And they get that you're thrilled. It's going to cure my thing. And then four days into it, you're like, did I take that pill? I can't remember. Mm-hmm. And it just, it and is feel better. the minute you feel better, which I, I think I've had discussions with people. That, it, it's also why. Um, like antidepressants are so end up long term being um, not really as valuable because the minute you stop feeling depressed, the first thing you think is, oh, I'm not depressed anymore. I don't need that pill. The pill's the only reason you don't feel depressed anymore. Yeah. And, 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 and it's just, it's the, it's funny. I've been talking about this so much um, lately with other people. And I don't know if it ties in exactly, but I, I was listening to someone the other day talk about the problem with politics in America. Why is it hard to govern people and do the thing that's best for them? And this person who had been in politics for decades said, believe it or not, the problem with politics is the promise of America. It is hope that is the problem. Because if you go to a person who's been systemically poor their entire life and say, hey, look, uh, for instance, do you want to, we need some of your money, some of your tax money to help poor people um, have health care. And you're going to benefit from this because you are a poor person. That that singular person will hear that and think, oh, I'm not going to be poor forever. And once mm-hmm. I'm not poor anymore, I don't want to give my money up for other people. And so it's the hope that your situation is going to change that actually stops people from even wanting to help themselves sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to me, there feels like a connection there with the idea of like, hey, here's a pill. Take it for 10 days in a row. And at the end of the 10 days, now make sure you take it. And then there's something in there where you just get hopeful and you're like, oh, I don't need this help anymore. I'm, I'm not that person that I was a few days ago. There's a really interesting psychological bend in there for how people's minds work. And, um, and it's difficult not to get sucked in when you're exhausted and tired and broke from buying meters and test strips and all this other stuff. Like it is so simple to just want to hear someone's name online and, and go, Oh gosh, this person's going to fix it for me. And I, and I, my message to people always is that there is a way to live well with type one diabetes you know, it's not perfect and it's certainly not preferable over not having type one, but you have it and, or your son or daughter has it. You can't, there's nothing you're going to do to snap your fingers and change that. I appreciate you coming on and being so clear about that. Actually. Thank you. Oh, oh that's fine. That's yeah. fine. No, I really do. It, it's a, I think it's a big deal for people to hear, especially from someone like you, who they, who they see and they, and they, they have so much hope for because that is generally the vibe I've gotten around you, which is that people are very uh, hopeful about what you're doing. And, um, and I think that's, I just think it's one. And by the way, thank you for putting yourself into something that doesn't pay you back every day. You, you know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and so I want to, this is how I want to finish up. We're 55 okay. minutes in. By the way, when I asked Denise to come on the podcast, she said, how are we going to talk about this for an hour? And I was like, oh, please stop it. And, uh, but she's like, no one's going to care for a whole hour. And I, I disagreed. And, and here we are 55 minutes into it. So, I know. I looked at the clock and go, well, there was one thing that was true about this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I wanted to, so let me ask you this one personal question yeah. because it's been bothering me all day to, that I want to ask you. What's it feel like? And I hope this doesn't sound insulting. I'm sure it doesn't. Well, yeah. maybe it does. What does it feel like to put your life's work into something that may not at the end finish? Um, I don't know. I mean, research is a continuum. Okay. So that more common question somebody asks is like, if you get this out 
and pe- everybody's using it because it's going to help them. Right. Is that the end of research in diabetes? I go, no. You know, every drug company is going to use this pathway to target with new drugs. It's kind of like somebody who invented insulin, right? You got pig insulin out there. Is that the end of it? Oh, my God, it's 100 years later. We're still making new insulin, right? So once you verify a pathway, and that pathway has significant therapeutic benefit, you can bet that 100 new drugs are going to be made on that same pathway. The hardest thing is identifying a new pathway and um, showing the efficacy of that pathway, whether it's a generic drug or it's a new drug. But once you identify a new pathway, then the doors come open for everybody to compete against it and try to do one better. So it, is it true then that even that almost all research that's that's like yours, the the best thing that could come out of it might not be even the intended direction that it took in the in, in the in its infancy. Is that right? Like you could yeah, end up learning something to take I, you in a completely different. Look at insulin. Yeah. I mean, you'd say, well, that was the end of it in 1920, right? They, they isolated insulin, lowered blood sugar, story finished, let's clap our hands and move on. And then you go, well, guess what? We can make pure insulin, we can make shorter acting, we can make longer acting. So once you, the hardest thing in science is identifying and validating new pathways. And certainly we're on that kind of a mission. But once you get that pathway validated with your drug of choice, and in this case it's BCG, if we show efficacy, such as lowering hemoglobin A1C by over 10%, everybody's going to go, well, that's great. I can do one better. So that will be the evolution that you hope for. And, you know, you hope in 200 years somebody looks back and goes, well, that was, you know, the first big step at um, lowering blood sugar to a whole new level. Now we got to do one up on that. So what it does is set the bar for other therapies to come along that can be synergistic or even competitive, but maybe a better profile, working faster. Well, let me ask you this then, and I realize I didn't ask you, and I should end with yeah. this then. Five years from now, phase two is done. It works the way you hoped, and people's hemoglobin um, A1Cs are down by at least 10% who are on the therapy. Yeah. What happens next? Oh, that's an interesting question. So healthcare is changing very, very rapidly right now. And so for most generic drugs, they never go into a phase three, okay? Sometimes they're required to, uh, but often they don't go into a phase three. What commonly happens at, at this point that is already starting to occur is insurance providers are going to be driving healthcare, in my opinion, over the next five years. So And you see the same story with cholesterol-lowering drugs. A whole bunch of companies got new cholesterol-lowering drugs out there, but then nobody bought them, and no insurance company would pay for them to be used. So really, the the secret of getting a useful drug out there is making sure it's priced at um, a good, effective price. And in this case, that's that's a no-brainer. But it's also making sure then the insurance providers see the value of it as something to add to the care of type 1 diabetes. So we're going to have to work with many parties in order to make sure it's available and um, used correctly. Okay. Well, thank you. I'm uh, thrilled with how this went, honestly. It was, uh, I, I know we, you you were one of the people I was like, hey, 
you know, when could you do this? And you're like, I can do it on this one day at three o'clock. And that's it. Usually, usually people are like, well, it could be this time or that time or Tuesday. You were like, it's this day at three o'clock. That's it, buddy. And I was like, okay. I said, okay, well, that's the day we'll do it then. Um, (laughs) You actually did, you actually did my 17 year old son a favor and you don't even realize that he has had a car for about eight months now he's been driving, but he still is apprehensive about taking longer trips on highways. And he had to drive himself to his own baseball games today, which was up the uh, New Jersey Turnpike a while. So, I see. Yeah, so by me being here with and you no at this call time. so far. <laughs> he texted me between games and he said, I got here, no problem, everything's great. And I was like, okay, good. And I said it would be. But yeah, had you had you been able to do it in the morning like I wanted you to, I would have. Uh, yeah, no, it's all these patients in the morning. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like your research. I, I, I did not intend for um, for this this. Uh, conversation to help my son with driving, but it certainly did in the end. Okay, so. Well, make sure he gets home safe, too. I don't want to be blamed for that. <laughs> no, don't worry. I'm sure he'll be okay. fine. Okay, Dr. Faustman, I am actually going to put this out this week, so when it's done, I will send you a link to it, but thank you so okay, much. Good. I really well, nice appreciate it. Nice you. You nice too. You. you too. Have a great day. Okay, thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Huge thank you to Dr. Faustman for taking time out from her research to come on the podcast and tell us all about what she's doing. Thanks also to Omnipod and Dexcom for sponsoring the Juicebox podcast and to Dexcom for signing back up to do it more. Yay, thank you. Dexcom.com forward slash Juicebox or myomnipod.com forward slash Juicebox to find out more. If you're enjoying the podcast, please think about going to iTunes and leaving a rating and a review. But especially if you're enjoying the podcast and you think you know somebody who might also share it. Podcasts are not something that everybody understands. If you found something valuable here today, First of all, push subscribe wherever you're listening and whatever app you're listening in. Subscribe, subscribe, please. If you're listening online at juiceboxpodcast.com, that's cool. I appreciate it. But you really should get yourself a podcast app. Um, Tell a friend. Please tell a friend. That's how the podcast grows and how we continue to get really great interviews like the one we have today. If you'd like to learn more about what Dr. Faustman's doing, you can go to faustmanlab.org. I'm going to spell it for you. F-A-U-S-T-M-A-N-L-A-B dot O-R-G. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the Juicebox Podcast.